Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and this week I'm going to be interviewing Wild Intrigue, which is a social enterprise trying to engage people with nature. But before then, we're going to cover the news. So this week I'm going to be looking at the Isolation Wildlife Photography Awards, uh, in brackets, unofficial. So the IWPA, as I'm going to keep calling it now, was started by a chap called Jack Mortimer, and it's a photography uh, competition basically to kind of encourage people to take pictures while they're in isolation either in their homes or their gardens there's a photo category and there's also a video category now I think it's free to enter I had a look on the website couldn't see anywhere to pay and you don't win anything um, so that might turn a few of you off but you know it's better than staring at a wall or rearranging your stamper collection so you know why not uh, why not give it a go They've got some great judges. There's Daphne Wong, who's an, a former MNHP uh, graduate. There's uh, Richard Peters, who's a you know, very well-known Nikon ambassador, and kind of he specialises in stuff in his garden. Sam Rowley, who recently took that picture for Wildlife Photographer of the Year with the two mice fighting on the tube. Um, so they've got quite a, a good selection of judges there. You've got until the 8th of June at 12pm, so you've got plenty of time. Um, why not? Give it a go. It's out there. That is www iwpaward2020.com so check that out anyway straight on to the interview with Kane and Heather so we're going to be looking at finding alternative ways to engage people with nature so here's the interview so thanks for joining me guys how are you both doing under lockdown we're doing pretty well actually aren't we we've got um nature around us i think which is helping a heck of a lot <laughs> yeah hedgehogs in the garden have brought some tadpoles in the tank inside so that's keeping us amused um, so yeah, it's nice to have a garden, um, feel lucky you have a garden really. Before we talk about wild, wild intrigue, what, what's both of your backgrounds? Uh, you go. <laughs> <laughs> so um, <laughs> I started out with sort of a love of nature, um, birds really, birds is my thing, or was my thing, I'm a bit more broad spectrum now. Um, but I started a blog as we all did at that sort of time, I'm sure you had a blog of some sort Jack. Um, yeah, yeah. But that blog made us take pictures, um, and I found that I quite liked taking pictures, which led us on to go and study um, wildlife media at the University of Cumbria. And so that went into this freelance world of photography and filmmaking, um, as well as still a bit of, do a bit of conservation and ecology. Um, so at the minute, I'm still doing a bit of freelance film and working photography, um, as well as lecturing at the University of Cumbria part-time, and then doing wild intrigue with the rest of the time. And for myself, <clears throat> I didn't actually have a blog. <laughs> we didn't even have a computer. <laughs> Never mind a blog. <laughs> oh, wow. This is a whole new world to me. Yeah. Um, so I grew up just trying to find enchantment in nature, I think. I was brought up in a, a town, like, um, and I just wanted to get out into nature as much as I possibly could. And that stayed with me, the kind of importance of um, it, no matter where you are. Went to uni, um, uni here, as it happened, did mm. animal conservation science. We didn't actually really speak to each other much in uni, <laughs> did we? Which is a bit odd. <laughs> um, yeah, did that degree, went, into straight, went straight into a job as an ecological consultant. Figured that it didn't quite work for me, and that's why I set up Wild Intrigue. Um, I wanted to inspire people, educate people, and rewild people. At the same time, I was working at the University of Cumbria, um, teaching wildlife conservation, 
But now, um, I work as well for the RSPB over at the Horsewater Reserve in the Lake District, and I'm the Beaver Project Officer for Cumbria as well. So we, we do wild intrigue as much as we possibly can in between uh, hectic full-time <laughs> jobs. But we love it all, so it's all good fun. <laughs> Var- yeah, variety is the spice of life, isn't it? So having, having a look... Having a look, uh, Wild Intrigue is an ecotourism social enterprise uh, dedicated to creating unique opportunities to inspire, educate and rewild everyone through the discovery of British wildlife. You can tell I haven't just read that uh, from your website. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, so, no. so, so tell us a little bit more about Wild Intrigue. So it's about creating unique opportunities in well for people to engage with British nature pretty much as it says so obviously RSPB the wildlife trusts lots of wildlife organizations and charities do a great job getting people out into nature but we wanted to do something different to get a new audience out Um, initially we were running expeditions which ran for about days or such as the Banff Estate Beavers up in Perthshire and the Isle of Carn are on the west coast of Scotland But the kind of problem there was that people booking on, they already had a great interest in nature. So we wanted to engage with people who just, they didn't really go out into nature much. So we were thinking, so how can we lure people out into nature? And we thought, pizza, pizza (laughs) is the answer to luring people out into nature. It's it's (laughs) always life, all all problems in life can be solved with pizza more or less. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> too right exactly so our bats and pizza nights were our first um mini exped as we call them which is just like a chunk of wildness and now we do our kitty works and donut days um moths and muffin mornings that can insist thing <laughs> who wants a muffin this is the problem <laughs> moths sure but muffins not so much definitely i think the beauty is it because it's only it's only me and my heather and occasionally you'll have an entertainer so We've got no sort of political structure that mm. we need to, so we can come up with mad ideas and essentially do what we like, really, and see if it works, see if it doesn't yeah, work. Try things. Um, and just try things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's good, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's quite not quite nice that you're quite grassroots, I suppose, because there's a face to your organisation. Whereas when you see the RSPB or the Wildlife Trust or whatever, you can't really picture who who runs that. They're so big and and almost corporate a lot mm. of the time. Where it's quite nice that you are. You're down in the mud. You're getting stuck into it. Um, so I think that's that's yeah. great. That's great about it. Um, and also, like the idea of like the bats and pizza and kitty wakes and donuts and stuff like that. It's going to appeal to people who who maybe nature. They might just really like donuts or pizza. I don't know. But then the nature might be a secondary <laughs> thing, and it gets them into it. So I think it's such a great idea that's to do it. that. Yeah, uh, well, once on Kitty Wicks and Donuts, because we work with a company called Proven Donuts, which is like a little artisan bakers that's just exploded. There's like queues going out the door and everything. Somebody actually booked on it with Kitty Wicks and Donuts, so they didn't actually have to wait in the queue for the Proven Donuts at their <laughs> shop. So, <laughs> so they learn about Kitty Wicks ecology and the time Kitty Wicks as well as they're getting the donut for the day. They're just, they're stuffing their face and then they just say, yeah, yeah, Kitty Wicks, Kitty Wicks, I'm not. It's fine by us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But um, I mean, like, so my, my partner's not particularly interested in, in wildlife, but I could probably convince it to do something like that because you've got that kind of more, you, you can imagine it's almost quite trendy in a way. Like someone's like, oh, well, uh, what did you do last night? Well, I went to listen for bats and I had a nice slice of pizza. So I, I think it's a great idea to yeah. engage young people. 
Yeah, we're tying in quite a lot with, I hate the word, but like the hipster trend kind of thing, <laughs> aren't we? Because it's quite like Instagram worthy, a lot of yeah. our mini expats. It looks like really pretty and we don't want people to just be there snapping away, but it does make for a really lovely memory if you've got a really lovely collection of photos yeah. attached to it, I think. Well, I think it's something that will stick out in their memory because it's not like it's, it's not like everyone's offering moths and muffins, is it? No one's offering it. <laughs> <laughs> I've got this idea to get it because obviously we'll put the, set the tables out. I want to get a moth tablecloth. So like... Ah, uh, okay. You know, Moths are in the background, cut out, and then just put on a tablecloth for Helen's bounty showings. It'll be people put people off the food. <laughs> oh, Creative yeah. difficulties. Yeah, but you know, it's worth worth a go, isn't it? Um, and you mentioned yeah. the the time the time kitty weight. So I know you've done some work with these canes. So what what's the story behind them? Because obviously, a seabird in a city in Newcastle is quite a quite an unusual thing. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. I think it's um. It's the well. It's the world's most inland colony of kittiwakes. Um, I think it's 17 kilometres up the river. The furthest they've got now, they are gradually spreading a little bit further up to the next bridges. But it's this whole. So I've been filming and photographing them for a while now. Um, and it's this whole sort of cyclic nature of not tragic, but sort of story that the nest on the Newcastle side on the um, sandstone buildings, the beautiful architecture of the quayside, and the business owners don't want them there. So throughout probably the past 10 years, mm -hmm. if not longer, um, the kittiwakes nest on the building and then the business puts a net up. Um, and sometimes this net works, sometimes it prevents them nesting, sometimes it doesn't work and causes problems. So if the nets are vertical, that's fine. But as soon as it starts as an angle, they can either land and get caught up or they can nest on top and the chicks actually hatch on the other side of the netting. Um, uh -huh. So it creates this bowl of... Um, Dead Kitty wakes up in the up in the net and and so two years ago this reached its peak and there was a lot of birds and things have changed a bit but there's always the, the it's a gull so you see people saying about the mess so they could be looking at the Kitty wake poo on the floor and there'll be a pile of sick from the night before and they're still focused on the Kitty wake poo yeah <laughs> um, and uh, people just think they're gulls so like think they're a herring gull going to steal the food when in reality they've had this amazing journey out in the North Atlantic or the North Seas and they're coming back to Newcastle just for a very short period in the summer to sort of bring that amazing kitty wake call and that sense of a seabird colony right into the city and like where else can you go and experience that it should be celebrated yeah, really. definitely we're missing them at the minute actually aren't we we're yeah. really craving the calls <laughs> there is a kitty wake camera by Durham Wildlife Trust they can bring their calls to us up yeah. So the, the kitty wakes and donuts sort of came from that. That we want nobody had people. Some people had done walks and things before, but nobody had tried to make them into sort of the tourism. I think to be like celebrating Newcastle, and um, so that's sort of where kitty wakes and donuts came Definitely. through. And they are. I mean, I know superficially they look like a small herring gull, but when you look at them, they are the beautiful birds, aren't they? Yeah, yeah completely yeah. stunning, yeah, and then just that red of the tongue and around the eye, like they are completely different when you get up close and personal with them. Yeah, no, definitely. And a bit of kind of current news, I suppose, I think this was, I don't know if this was announced yesterday or the day before, but I, I think you saw this, uh, Kane, again, was the, the Natural England approved uh, wild oh. peregrine chicks to be taken from the wild. Um, yeah. It's not something I know a great deal about, but obviously I, I just wanted to know what your two's take was on this. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah, it's ridiculous because <laughs> yeah. as a kid, I sort of had a bit of nature, but 
I was still I still spent a lot of time on the computer, and uh, at the time I wasn't really getting on with my dad. So we got into um, falconry. Okay. So I actually flew birds of prey, um, and uh, um, worked at falconry centre every weekend, probably from when I was thirteen to when I was eighteen. Um, and when I read through Natural England's blog, it says it says that they're doing it. So there's a peregrine stud book, which is ridiculous because the only reason there should be a stud book because the peregrines aren't going to go anywhere now. They're everywhere now, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. So the only reason they're going to keep a stud book is so that they can get a higher price from Arab falconers because right. Arab falconers and German falconers want a high. They'll pay more money for British birds, um, so they have to be able to prove that they're British birds to get a higher price. And the other thing they said was it's tradition. Well, it's fair enough it's tradition, but it's so long ago that we used to take birds from the wild. It was done illegally, um, probably in our living memory. Um, but then birds are still in, in captivity, the legal ones, so they could breed from them if they wanted a stud book. Um, and they might have the birds that are, you can get everything. You could go out today and buy a peregrine falcon or a hybrid. And that was the last bit that really unnerved me was that said that, um, there would be a slight conservation positive in that there wouldn't be as many hybrids floating around in the wild um, because of these peregrine falcons. Well, that's ridiculous. We could go to the centre of Newcastle um, and see somebody flying a hybrid falcon on a playing field. So how could they possibly know how many um, falcons are out there, uh, how many hybrids are out there in the wild? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's quite sad, isn't it, when you see these, when it's kind of it's almost certainly kind of money orientated, but they're just painting it in a different, um, a different picture. Definitely. I think the problem as well is natural England is starting to lose its purpose even more so than previously. Supposed to be kind of guardians of the countryside and representing natural England, and they're just the, not. They're adhering to the kind of commands of a small minority of groups in numerous situations, the badgerical included. So they're just losing a lot of respect in the conservation conservation community as well as with the public. So it's a, a big risk at the minute. Definitely. But like, falconers um, won't even be happy with it though, because no. there's so much stuff readily available in captivity. Or why would you bother taking stuff from the wild? Mm. Yeah. So it seems the only people winning are the the people buying these birds, really. At the end of the day, or the people selling them, I suppose, really. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. So definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's clear to see you're both quite passionate about that. And it's also fair to say you've both had varied careers with Heather. You were researching feeding green vervet monkeys in Gambia. And you've gone from that to being obviously the... <laughs> I've done some research um, from the... Where beehive. did you find that? I can dig some stuff out, don't worry. I can use Google. Um, uh, <laughs> That's terrifying. And, and uh, now... Oh, yeah, the amount of stuff you find online is incredible. Um, <laughs> and uh, now obviously you're the beaver officer with uh, with the RSPB and Kane has filmed all kinds of wildlife uh, for all kinds of wildlife productions and particularly time lapse even for shows like like Coronation Street of all programs <laughs> um, so what I just wanted to know before we wrap this up is what is the highlight of both of your careers so far uh, well I've got one film and highlight I think it's probably split between me filming and people highlights but I've got a film and highlight when I was a kid I used to film this um, sparrowhawk nest in a grotty little wood behind the station um, and I was sitting there one day and I could see a change in behaviour and um, it was the eggs were hatching so the first chick hatched and she flew around and dropped the empty eggshell right in front of my hide 
um, which I've still got on the bookcase behind <laughs> her there. I think that was probably one of my filming highlights. But with Wild Intrigue, um, you get a lot of highlights from seeing people see bats for the first time or learning that Kitty Wakes on just another girl. And I think it's just constant highlights then, isn't it? Definitely. It's yeah, it's really tough for me that actually. Um there's not the been monkeys, so then. many wildlife highlights. <laughs> not the monkeys, because I, yeah, I won't get into that one. Yeah, I was urinated on by a, a syphilis-infested vervet in the end. I don't oh. have it, by the way. Yeah, not a highlight. Uh, that was, that, that was going to be my next. That was going to be my next question. But no, okay. Um. <laughs> Got that out of the way then. Yeah. <laughs> um. um but yeah, my memories, I think, my, my top moments always come down to engaging people with wildlife. So with Wild Intrigue, I always remember one moment with a dad who had two sons and they'd never been out into nature before. This was the first experience and like, what an experience. And they switched the bat detectors on and they heard the clicking around them for the first time. And just like the, their faces was just something that'll stay with me I think and it kind of reminds you why you do what you do so it's always people related I think my my memories <laughs> I think that's great I've, I've been to um Channery Point before and when you see obviously people aren't too into wildlife but they want to see the dolphins and their faces just light up mm. so I think it is yeah. always nice when you get people engaging with nature in in that way um well look it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you too and um I'll catch you later so that was Kane and Heather. Sorry, there's a few connection errors with that, but to be fair, they do live in Kilda, which is the most remote place in England. So I think we did well just to get that. Um, and I think that their passion and their enthusiasm shines through uh, for the work that they do. So that's absolutely fantastic. So on to Nature Reserve of the Week. And this week, I'm going to be looking at Pensthorpe. Pensthorpe is a 200-acre reserve based in North Norfolk, and it's hosted Spring Watch from 2008 to 2010. It's probably best known for its wildlife. It's probably best known for its wetland habitat, but also boasts hedgerows, woodland, water meadows, river banks, including the River Wensum, which is a beautiful chalk stream, uh, farmland, breck, and heath. So there's a lot to go out there. Mentioning some of the uh, grassland areas, there's 80 species of grasses. So if you like grass, Pensthorpe is the place to go. They've also got some lovely little gardens in amongst uh, all the nature reserves, so there's plenty of, of flowers, both native and ornamental. For bird watchers, there's seven bird hides there, and the furthest one is a 20-minute walk. So you're not walking uh, miles and miles to go and find these uh, hides. They're not too strenuous. Being Norfolk, you can guarantee it's all pretty flat, so it's not a strenuous walk around the reserve either. Um, it can be a little bit kind of jarring because it is kind of weavy. So I would say that you, you really want the whole day for Pensel. It's not the sort of place you're going to go for an hour. You want the whole day to go there um, and enjoy it. And it also has a wader aviary. So you can go in and for a photographer, you can get some close-up shots. Obviously, they're not wild. These are captive animals, but you get close-up views of things like bearded tits, rough avocets, corn crake, uh, blue throats, lots of interesting stuff. And they've got other things on the reserve like flamingos, cranes, um, and breeding programs for, for red squirrels. So they do a lot of conservation work as well. It's it's not really a zoo or anything like that. They do burden, they do warden bird talks and walks, so you can go around and find a little bit more about the reserve and some of the animals that live on it. And the facilities are very good, with lots of car parking space, a beautiful courtyard calf, 
a beautiful courtyard calf, exhibition room full of local artists, a gift shop again with local crafts, books, etc. So all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that you really, really well at Pensfork is kind of uh, act. And one of the things they do really, really well at Pensforp is cater for children. So they've got a wild roots play area, which is 700 square meters, and they can just go, you know, run right in there and maybe spark that interest in nature afterwards or before and go show them some of the animals. And they've also got a very good pond dipping platform there. Um, it's also a host for the Norfolk Birdwatching Festival. So that normally happens, I think, May, May time, um, and you get all the kind of wildlife celebs and stalls and, and things like that. So... If you're in Norfolk, you've got a spare day, why not head to Pensthorpe? Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and I'll catch you in the next one. Cheers.